I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So welcome to a slightly different format for the discomfort practice. You're entering this episode in the middle of a conversation. So we're not starting with the usual first question, which you know if you listen to the discomfort practice regularly, but my guest Tim Collings actually suggested that we just dive straight into some of the really juicy chat we have about leadership and what the world needs right now. So we recommend some books, we have a really good chat about a lot of things, and Tim will definitely be coming back in future because we covered so much ground that I actually had to decide to just dive in in the middle of our conversation. So enjoy it. And let me know what you think in the comments. So today's episode of The Discomfort Practice is with someone I have gotten to know. He's a pandemic friend. Let's say it that way. And you're getting my bells. I met Tim Collings on LinkedIn about a year and a half ago, maybe sometime in summer 2020 when I was on a mission and he was on a mission, apparently, to reach out to people on LinkedIn who added me and just say thank you for the invitation and those who had a profile that seemed very compatible with mine saying, why don't we have a Zoom chat and a coffee? Because we're all locked in our houses right now. (laughs) So from that, I have gained some really beautiful connections and Tim is top of the list there. So let me introduce him because he is speaking to me late at night in his home near Sydney, Australia. Well, out in the sticks, not near Sydney. And I am having a nice, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed noon in Barcelona where I've just had a cup of coffee. So this is going to be a fun conversation with us in potentially slightly different energies. So Tim's journey as a leader began age 12 and continued through high school and university. His first corporate role as a leader was at age 25, which is quite young. And since 2016, he's led as co-founder and co-CEO an international consultancy called 4i Leadership. Tim holds a BA in Organizational Behavior from Lancaster University in the UK and also has an executive qualification in High Impact Leadership from the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. He's also a certified executive coach and is currently studying the neuroscience of change. So I can't wait till he's finished studying that and we can dork out on neuroscience and I can learn some things from him. Tim plays a leading role co-creating and guiding the strategy and operations of 4i Leadership, which is a decentralized autonomous, collaborative collective of leader enablers. Their purpose is to enable leaders to create a better world. His climate work has been informed by direct experiences of ecological trauma. If you don't know what ecological trauma means, you can probably guess at it, and you might have experienced a bit of it yourself. So Tim is currently exploring the role of leaders in regenerative futures. That's how do we regenerate the earth and society to create a good future, a sustainable future? Tim is co-convener of the ANZ Region for the Climate Coaching Alliance. He's a member of the 2021 cohort of the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, and he hosts and produces the Better World Leaders podcast. I was recently a guest, so I'll make sure I stick that link in the show notes so you can listen to him interview me before listening to me interview him. So as I'm saying throughout this season, season three of The Discomfort Practice, I'm talking to Tim today because we're living in a world that urgently needs better innovation and leadership and new ways of thinking and being in order to create 
a human experience, a society, and a planet in which we can all thrive. The old ways just aren't cutting it anymore. So we're going to talk a lot about leadership, and we're going to get uncomfortable. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Betsy. Very much. I am trying hard not to sort of fanboy too much in our own conversation, because I do spend quite a bit of time uh, both sitting on the other side of the microphone as a host, but also sitting in the chair, listening to you interview people. And I really love what you're doing with this platform. And I'm deeply honored and very excited to be here. So thank you. Oh, ditto. It also warms my heart to have somebody be a fanboy. This is amazing. Somebody I admire as much as I admire you and love your work and follow your work. So I'm just like, wow, it's, it's just a love fest here. And also we have such a, a dynamic I enjoy when we talk. It's we talk about serious things, but we manage to have fun and some banter and we dance well together, I would say, conversationally. And you kind of get my very intentional pace of speaking. And we'll talk about you earlier before we, we started recording called it, it's like slow work. And I would love to dive into slow work for those who aren't familiar with the term and the concept, because it's a beautiful one that is much needed right now. But I want to ask you some tough questions about leadership. So. Do you think we currently have the right leaders in order to lead us out of climate crisis and social inequality? That depends on your definition of leaders. I think if your definition of leaders is hierarchical, power and authority based, then I would say no with very few exceptions. If your definition of leaders is more systemic, especially a living systems, approach and you're looking at leaders as anyone, then I would say we have the right leaders in all kinds of places bordering on everywhere. And that is one of the reasons that I have hope. So then do we have the systems that we need to enable people to step into a leadership role, even if they're not in, in a leadership role in a hierarchy? Do we have the right systems that enable us to tap into that leadership that you're saying, is it all levels? So I, I would say we do and we have had the systems that I believe we need the most. The issue is that we have layered upon them systems which are dysfunctional and now have become the sort of the final redoubts of those wrongly positioned leaders. I don't know if it's, you know, sort of convergence of networks or it's confirmation bias, or <laughs> it is, you know, sort of a, a rising tide that lifts all boats, but I am seeing evidence of not just demand for, but action from these new emergent systems on an hourly basis, right? I'm seeing the well-being economy spoken about daily. I'm seeing regenerative practice, living systems, regenerative practice and practitioners like a growing army. I do not like military terminologies, but I, the, the energy in that movement uh, and the organization in that movement is, is abundant. And I also see you know, people who not only have lost a great deal and have been traumatized by our current systems 
riling against them. But I also see, and again, on a near daily basis, examples of people who have had enormous success and could easily declare victory and then join the merry band who are digging in and defending these systems, but actually going the other way and saying, I, I, I see I'm part of the problem and I see that my success is a reflection of the dysfunction of this system. Ooh, can, can we explore this? Because this gives me hope. This will probably give a lot of people hope that there are definitely people who still benefit from the system because, you know, they're white or male or Western or all of these things or whatever it is their advantage is that comes at the expense often of other people in the world and in the systems, but they're seeing that and they recognize that they still need to do something different. They need to be part of a change. You know, they are the leaders who naturally emerged from the systems that we've had. So they're probably white men. I'd love to hear some maybe specific examples of how we, we are seeing leaders who recognize their privilege and want to do better and they want to do good things with it. It was an article I think it was either from today or from yesterday in our equivalent of the Financial Times, right? The Australian Financial Review. And they were running an article on um, a young trader in London who had at one time been Citibank's most successful trader. If I remember the details correctly, his first year's earnings at the age of 23 was £400,000. And in his second year, he made a million. And he is now retired in his mid-30s and is basically saying, this is all wrong. And yeah, what he's looking at in particular is opportunity and access to property that cannot just be occupied, but can be an asset and an asset that you know, is not just a debt encumbency, but is, is something that you realize in your lifetime and then, you know, is the inheritance that you pass on to your children. And his contention is that that is now so remote a possibility for so many people that in actual fact, we don't even have functional capitalism anymore. What we have is very real feudalism. That was the word that came to mind for me. Yeah, absolutely. I was pondering this myself the other day where just thinking about the number of friends I have who've bought a property without the help of their parents, and I actually can't think of any. It's impossible unless you have the capital of an older generation who had access to different resources. You don't get to have a property, and it is creating, yeah, a system of haves and have nots, feudalism, where wealth is hoarded by a few and maybe rented things, resources are rented to those who don't have access to those resources and power. None of this is new news, right? Like I stand here today, age 41, and over my time in the planet, you know, we've seen more destruction. We've seen more you know, rapid accumulation of wealth into an ever-increasingly small group. I know that the statistics will claim that you know, it's been the most progressive period in human history, but there is an abundance of evidence that fewer people may be dying of curable illnesses and more people may have access to water, but that's not enough. And especially when you look at the abundance of wealth, it's, it's just simply not good enough. And what, what are you going to do 
with your $25 billion. And that's not even a teeny portion of, you know, the wealth that exists in this extremely small group. What I'm seeing is a lot of rediscovery. And what I'm seeing is a lot of reconnection. And what I feel is driving that is intuition, quite possibly intergenerational intuition, that at some level, there is a collective wisdom mm. that hasn't been this way for that long, and it doesn't need to be this way. And if we look at numerous examples where, as a species, we have figured this out, and we have been able to live in abundance with complex societies and deep, meaningful interactions in large communities navigating really treacherous ecological periods in and out of ice ages, you know, dramatic climatic shifts. Mm. And all of this knowledge, thank goodness, is still with us because it's held by the custodians of indigenous wisdom on every continent and in almost every country on the planet. It's a good reminder that humans have been around for a very long time. We've survived this long. We've had moments of empires collapsing and ice ages, and we have survived. But yeah, I agree with your assessment that we, we have more wealth than we've ever had before, and the way that it's distributed is simply unacceptable. The fact that people aren't dying as young and they have access to water still doesn't mean they're living lives of abundance. It just means we've done some things better and there are some major flaws in our current system and current world. Yeah. And I think, I think where the, for me, where the wealth is most abused is the way in which it's the story that is told is that it's the most desirable, most aspirational goal, right? That actually to be on purpose is to be fully actualizing your productivity so that you can consume as much as possible at the highest margin possible. Stuff. Because I see this weaving its way even into sort of the abundance crowd because I circulate with, you know, sort of yoga meditation teachers, very embodied, grounded people. But there's this idea that, you know, you have a vision board with the car you want on it. And I'm like, that's kind of all wrong to me. That's still about consumption. It's defining abundance as a very narrow and quite capitalist thing. It, it really is. And I mean, this is such a, such a contentious point within the well-being movement right? My aspirational sort of frameworks for leadership all honor these ancient societal constructs. They are relational, contextual, and they are distributed. So to be a leader in the way that I believe we need leaders moving forward is to be deeply relational to land, to beliefs, to yourself, to others and to the system at large you pick the system state country planet universe keep going if you like let's unpack that a bit so the difference between leadership and leaders i think it's probably obvious to some so this is this is this is semantics now but the meaning of leadership to me is emblematic of rigid hierarchies and a position that is adopted as opposed to purpose, values, intentions, and specifically behaviors, right? 
So leadership does not necessarily involve a state of being, right? You can be in a position of leadership and display zero attributes and actions of being a leader. Yep. I agree. I was deeply honored to make a very minor contribution to a global summit of the Climate Psychology Alliance. And some of the most moving and transformational moments, so much richness, and again, so many leader-like behaviors being demonstrated, but people from all walks of life, from all professional backgrounds, but where the convergence was, was all around the system's broken. No one's going to fix it for us. It only changes by us changing. It's these consistent three lines of work, self, group, system, self, group, system, self, group, system. It's just up. It's everywhere. And if it's, if it is confirmation bias, well, you know what, I'm enjoying it and I'm just going to revel in it for a bit longer. Self group system, self group systems. And that's a really useful thing for people to get their heads around. So, you know, how do you sort of think about that in your, your own life? And that's basically like, well, if we're trusting the people in leadership to save us, we know that that's not going to work. So how can we step up? And then how can we collectively step up? And then how can we create systems that actually support us to thrive and support the planet to thrive? So basically, in a nutshell, that's what we're talking about, right? So I, I guess I'm just going to say one thing, which is not born out of any sense of obligation that I should have some kind of human relational sympathy and empathy for these leaders that are in leadership positions. Potentially, our expectations of them are too high. Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the archetypes of these people without even looking at the individuals themselves, right, they, they, these are not necessarily people that you will typically find at your, you know, average internal work session. Some of the most impressive leaders that I've met have been in recovery for 20 years, you know, as former addicts of something or other, and they've spent two decades doing really serious self-examination as to why they painted themselves into that corner and why they destroyed so many of the relationships that are most important to them. And they're still on a journey as we all are. But what I was going to say is Otto Chalmers, you know, shift from ego to eco, eco being ecosystem. Mm -hmm. How many of the people in leadership positions do you think can make that shift, have the capacity to do it with all of the pressure and expectation that is woven into their identity, is woven into the story that they tell themselves on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. Okay, what if we opened up a huge amount of time and space to do the slow work? Do you think that they have the capability to do it? And then there's power. Do they actually have the power to change a system that is so dysfunctional? That is a question to leave hanging. Capability and power. Do we have leaders who have the capability to do? Well, I mean, you hear the term transformational leadership, and it's about actually transforming yourself first and being willing and able to look inside, to dive inside, to do the work of disassembling your ego so that you can connect more with your deepest purpose with other people, with collective impact. I mean, there's no way we can have this conversation quickly, so I'm not going to dive too deeply. But so many leaders, well, people in leadership roles, I really like that distinction. People in leadership, because anyone can be a leader. It's a set of behaviors. But people in leadership roles, they've gotten there because they actually thrive in the current system. And therefore, 
are probably not the right people to have the ideas about how to create better systems because it's kind of working for them. But then also the idea of you know, who actually has the power. And I think about the undergrads I'm teaching right now, leadership. And I think a lot of them do have that capacity to do that deep inner work. But of course, they're at the beginning of their careers. They have no power. <laughs> so I'm just hoping that people like that step into leadership roles sooner rather than later or take power because otherwise we're in big trouble if we're relying on the current crop of leaders. I, I love the energy of, of working with emerging leaders. This is where I find more evidence of hope-giving intervention. And it's actually in the new, the new and the young. Right? And I put the separation there because I'm no expert, but I've done a, an amount of work in innovation and innovation practice. And what you find is that there's a real divergence in where the most sort of creative ideas come from when you're running an innovation practice. And they come from people that are very, very long tenured and they're essentially intuition based. Right? Someone will just throw something up that makes no sense, but they really feel very, very strongly that this, this is what's needed here. Mm. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you get completely novel creative ideas from people who are less than and there, there seems to be a little bit of variance but it's typically the boundary line is less than six months into their tenure and somewhere after six months and then it takes a very very long time to kind of work your way through and come out the other end you get all of these normalizing pressures in cultures to not speak up or to not say the crazy idea or to oh let's we we, we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work so let's not do that again so when I look at movements like the climate action movement, um, the people that give me the most hope are people of all ages and all professions who are new to the movement because they're coming in with a whole lot of ideas, most of which won't work, but that's not, the, that's not what an idea is for. And a lot of the time, and again, where the innovation practice, you know, sort of will, will inform is it, it's actually about which ideas best enable ideas to be collected and connected. And, you know, like in, in our team, you know, you know, so we've been a virtual business using Zoom with, you know, a, a fully autonomous team where we co-create, co-design, co-strategize, co-support, all of those things. We've been doing that for five years. And then along comes this COVID thing and we're just like, all right, great. Well, yeah, we, we'll just keep going. You know, I got people in our team who range from 25 to nearly 70. Wow. What a great range. And the innovation doesn't, doesn't come from the bottom of that age range. And we've got cognitive diversity. We've got religious diversity. We've got geographic origin got stage of life, stage of career, you name it, pretty much. I'm trying to remember one of the authors I adore, Lean Gorison, is the most downloaded episode on Better World Leaders so far. Let's, let's link here. Lean has this marvelous definition of redundancy. And there's one more, sorry, Lean, that, that gives you resilience. For us, our experience is that's what we've proved works. And you don't see a lot of diversity 
in positions of leadership and you don't see any redundancy, especially not of capacity, right? You talk to any leader in a senior position in any entity anywhere in the world and they're all working 100 hours a week and they're constantly on the move and they're constantly moving on to the next brief, the next strat pack, the next problem, whatever it is. There's no down regulation. Mm. There's no cognitive shifting built into the, the system. Mm. You can't operate like that. We're, that's, we're not built like that. Yeah, they're worked like machines. Yeah, not humans. They're completely overwhelmed. I really like Convergence. And what's interesting in this collection that I'm holding here is these are, these are books that sit in very different parts of what you very... I think affectionately referred to as my library. It's, it's a mess. But I've got a book here which is authored by a former American diplomat. I've got a book here which is co-authored by a Finnish professor and an Aboriginal elder. And I've got a book which is uh, authored by an American biomimicry expert. All of these speak to contextual, distributed, and essentially sort of novel leadership approaches. So Matthew Barzan refers to this as constellation leaders. Tamsin Worley Barker talks about teaming and she uses lots of primarily animal, but all kinds of natural system environment. And treading lightly, Carl Eric Svabe and Tex Scothorpe basically talk about Aboriginal culture in a way that it provides an example framework for organization design for ways of bringing beings through frameworks into structures where they can get stuff done in a highly organized, totally sustainable way. So if anything that we've discussed so far in the context of where do we think leading needs to go, I would grab one of or all of those and jam them in a blender and feed it to your brain. Mm, that's a really good blend. Thank you. I love it when people give book recommendations on here because I would add, and I think we talked about this in yours. I'm staring at it at my desk. Anything by Margaret Heffernan, who is incredible, Texan, based in London, works with leaders, but one is willful blindness. So it's basically the idea that it's not the things we don't know that get in our way. It's the things that we refuse to know or refuse to acknowledge. And also Uncharted, which is basically about how being in the unknown can be such a positive thing, which is a real, it really resonates with me, obviously, and my obsession with discomfort and the theme <laughs> of this podcast. But those are a couple that I would recommend as well to like stick in the blend there because, yeah, I think we're experiencing a, a time, you've already said this earlier on, of rediscovery and rediscovering, I keep talking about, you know, indigenous wisdom, because I'm starting to really wander into the idea of permaculture. I want to invest in land that I can protect from development and make regenerative and also have as a place where people can come and work and have a livelihood. But permaculture as a term and as a movement is very middle class and white. And I'm aware that there are many cultures in the world who have been practicing regenerative and restorative agricultural practices and working with the land forever. They never stopped working that way. And to just honor that and learn from that. So that's something I'm discovering at the moment, as well as rediscovering some of these systems that really work for human beings that we've totally forgotten as we've built this structure of capitalism that's very much about machinery and kind of treating people as human resources and machines essentially and that of course 
is reflected in our leadership. I'm going to send you a, a link to a little playful video I created with my friend, Mickey Kavari. Mickey is uh, the only white fella in an indigenous led entity called Native Foodworks, which is focused on regenerating the food system in Australia by repopulating native plants and animals. I think there's a real benefit to just kind of skipping all the other iterative bits and going straight to living systems-based regenerative practice. That is practice that needs slow work. It is so contrarian to so much of our identities. And by our, I say people who are Western educated, but the language that we use is colonizing. The way that we inform our perspectives is based on a lot of mechanization and a lot of enlightenment era mental models, which are fundamentally reductionist, right? Go look at the enlightenment garden in Paris. doesn't look like a functioning living system because it's not, right? It needs an enormous amount of input just to maintain its form. What I've learned from my middle-class white man permaculture garden that I have out there. Um, <laughs> Is it very organized? <laughs> No. Okay, good for you. Good for you. Best thing for me to do with it is leave it alone, let it grow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like so the 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 stages that is the is the is the way to come into doing the transformational work of slow work is is first you've got to nurture the conditions. Well, let's define slow work for people. Okay, sure. The working framework that I'll offer now and no doubt lots of people will tear down and I'll forever feel, feel foolish and embarrassed, but here we go, is that it's really about grounding and being fully present in place and truly connecting to yourself and whomever and whatever else is in place with you. And we don't have time to get into definitions of place and space right now, but you can be in place in a virtual space. Let's just put it that way. In my experience, if you do the aforementioned, mm -hmm. if you ground yourself with an evidence-based practice, whether that's being physically barefooted, connected to a natural surface or being on a grounding mat or sitting still in an office chair on the 35th floor and doing an evidence-based grounding breathing practice, you can do a meditative flow if that works for you. There are so many ways to access this real sort of root of where you are, that introspection. Mm. And presencing is really a sort of a complex, interconnected web of sensory interpretation, right? Like you're really feeling into everything that's happening, right? What's going on within your body, what's going on around you, what else is, is, is kind of influencing the energy that you're receiving. So a typical presencing exercise will involve prompts such as describe three things that are happening within your body right now, describe three things that you can feel outside of your body right now. And I think then it's about 
conversation, but you can just sit back, do this grounding, do this presencing, and then, and then, you know, have the, have the conversation. And I think the, the best example that I can speak to of coming into a virtual space and then being in place and, you know, having incredible encounters with very, very intertwined people is in an active hope circle. What is that? <laughs> Here we go. The primary um, author is Joanna Macy, who wrote a book called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Oh, what a great title. Um, yeah. And it is, it's, it's, a, it's a primer for basically navigating the worst of the, well, I'm not going to say potential, I'm going to say consequences, given what I've seen and experienced of the climate crisis. Mm. So an active hope circle is a way of convening a space, which is what I've experienced, really feeling, using, again, these sort of grounding and presence approaches to, to really sort of fill a space with abundant love and gratitude and appreciation for what is most important. I love that. So a, a, a sort of a, a prompt that you'll quite often hear early in an active hope circle is what draws you to be here mm. or what calls you to be here? What a great question. And quite often that's the only question that's asked in a whole active hope circle, which might run for two hours and you might have a tidal flow into breakout rooms and back together. And that just sounds like something that would feed you. And what shows up and how people show up. So again, let's talk about the frameworks. Let's talk about the systems. Let's look at the leading that happens in these spaces. So the convener in a circle like this is leading. But they're leading in a completely compassionate way. Their context is as a space holder. That's what they're there. And then those that open the responses, they then are leading and doing so in a way which is very connective to their inner tissue, responding to a prompt like that. And then when their time is done, they shift out of that leading form and they become an observer. And then there might be a musician you know, or a, you know, a playful contributor who can shift the field and re-energize or deepen the connection. And they are leading by inducing that shift in the field, by changing the energy and by sense-making, when is the right time for that to happen? And is that emotion to hold people in the depth of where they are and nurture that space that they're in? Or is it a move to motion and progress people into a new space and nourish that space and, make, and, and help them want to be there and bring so that the, the active hope Modality is really around action overcoming anxiety. And that by, no, no, I was just going to say, by, by being in a, a state of doing 
spending time preparing for and then moving into that state of being like that is a restorative practice at least that's my understanding of it and that's what i've received from being in these circles it just strikes me that so much of uh, just the essence of all of these approaches and the ones you've spoken about are very much about being present and not trying to put a structure necessarily on things i mean there's a structure a framework within which to flow but it's very like nature you know things can ebb and flow and change and not happen or happen and it's very much like the seasons they're steady but they're not certain the tide comes and goes you know certain things are dominant and then other things are dominant and it just feels very natural because otherwise you know we we set up these hierarchies in our cultures and our businesses that aren't very natural to us in some ways actually and i think i would observe we're really as a society and in leadership, as you said, rediscovering, but we're rediscovering in particular the need for and the beauty of collaboration. Because, you know, we've had our age of John Wayne hero leaders, and it's a very lonely and ineffective way to lead because you're doing it by yourself. And as we move forward and address these big pressing issues like eco-anxiety, climate crisis, social inequality, colonialism, etc. We we really just don't have space for that kind of leadership anymore, I would say. So I love this kind of, I think this is a beautiful way to end it, this refocusing and this reminder of all the answers are in our heritage and in the ecosystem around us. If you just look to nature and how it works in collaboration, if one piece fails, it has a huge impact on others. But everything relies on everything else. And if we can take that into our idea of being leaders and also into leadership, so when people are in particular roles, I think we will reconnect with a much more whole way of being and being in society and a much more whole way of creating systems that support us. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners will no doubt enjoy all of this. So thank you. It's my absolute pleasure and I hope that some of this rambling will be of benefit and if I may, the uh, suggestion that I will give is anyone that is inclined to do some slow work with this, leave it here, leave it alone, resist if you have it, the urge to replay and then maybe set yourself a prompt in a couple of days to just feel out one thing that is resonating with you and then take a specific action in reference of that one thing and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. I love that suggestion. All I can say is, yes, do what Tim says. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you continue to enjoy something from this podcast that can prompt you to step into your own leadership. And we will speak to you again soon, no doubt. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts, leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive.
Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.